Hello and welcome back to So-Called Romaniacs, the so-called podcast about so-called Brexit. After the BBC decided to refer to Saturday's People's Vote March as the so-called People's Vote March, treatment not accorded the so-called Taxpayers' Alliance or the so-called European Research Group, we're following their lead. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. It's good to be back on the show after too long with a couple of our so-called regulars. Naomi Smith is Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain and she is Queen of Remain this week after her pivotal role in organising the biggest political demonstration not involving Jeremy Corbyn in British history. <laughs> <laughs> hey Naomi, we're going to talk uh, about the hard politics of the march later, but how was it for you personally? Yeah, very invigorating. Um, turnout exceeded what were actually pretty high expectations. Well, what are you able to say what you were... Because I noticed on last week's podcast you, 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 you had some numbers but you didn't mention what the numbers were, obviously. Yeah, so I think we were very hopeful that it would be well over 200,000. So what we were basing it on was the number of RSVPs we had in June versus what we got as the official figure of turnout in June, and then we extrapolated from that. So we were pretty confident. But, you know, it was it was triple, quadruple what we were hoping for. So that was marvellous. And I think the weather really, really helped. But I think the, the best thing for me about it was that finally it looked slightly more diverse ethnically and very much more diverse um, in terms of age, there were not anywhere near the ratio of uh, grey-haired people um, as there were last time. There were, there were a lot more younger people, so yeah, it had a much better vibe. Also marching her feet off was Ingrid Oliver, comedian, actor and co-writer and director of that Best for Britain ad that's been doing the rounds on social media. Uh, it's had over a million views so far. It's the one... <laughs> it's the one urging people to speak up when they don't get what they were promised with a rather long, touching close-up of a massive pile of dog poo. Yeah. Ingrid... As the auteur, could you explain the symbolism behind the dog poo? Any resemblance to Brexit was purely coincidental. Um, no, I, we genuinely, I, we gen, I mean, I co-wrote it with some, some other uh, uh, comedians and genuinely the thinking was not Brexit equals dog shit. Um, but people seem to have extrapolated that, so so be it. Um, but that, yeah, in all seriousness, that had a, we were very pleased with that because we obviously um, I did that with Naomi uh, for Best for Britain and um, the aim was to get people to write with their MPs and I think that is what's happened and we got Daniel Hernan retweeting someone really slagging it off so my job is done (laughs) (laughs) I I can retire happy frankly and how was the march for you? Um, it, do you know what? It was really emotional. I got I got really choked. Um, but then I'm a, I'm a massive lovey, so that's part of it. <laughs> but I am um, in the world's biggest waitrose. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, don't don't get me started on that. But I, in in all seriousness, it was. I feel like I, I spent two years sort of sitting on my own in my living room, getting very angry about Brexit and sort of reading consuming articles about it. And I, I've become that person that people avoid at parties because when, I, when they ask me how I'm doing, my answer is, well, shit, because Brexit. Um, and so I can see their eyes glazing over. And I just felt like, am I, am I a weirdo? Am I the only one apart from the other Romaniac panellists uh, that care that much? And then turning up and seeing 700,000 other weirdos, you suddenly feel like you're not alone. And that meant a huge amount to me. <laughs> Yeah, I do think that's rather the, the large point, part of the point of March. Yeah. yeah, solidarity. Yeah. And it's the first Romaniacs this week, as we have a returning guest for the first time ever. Nick Cohen is the Observer's political commentator, the author of relentlessly upbeat books, including What's Left, Waiting for the Etonians, and You Can't Read This Book. <laughs> he's also a born-again runner and a Manchester United supporter, and he's come back on the show, so he obviously believes in the cleansing powers of suffering. <laughs> Hi, Nick, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm, 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 I'm honoured to be the, the first returnee. 
Well, it's been it's been a whole year and a lot's changed. What were we all so worried about? <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> um, did you go on the the march yourself? Are you are you a marcher? Um, well, I, I really wanted to, and I was about to. And my wife pointed out that being a centrist dad has uh, its responsibilities as well as its joys. <laughs> and I was down for childcare, so I couldn't. Um, but I was I was um, heartened at the distance, Mike. Actually, I, I was astonished by the turnout. Um, because I remember the one before, and I guess about 100,000 people, was it? Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, that. Lord knows how many there were in central London uh, mm-hmm. at, at, at the weekend. And the, the kind of uh, abuse you get and, uh, you know, people damning your, your, your online sketches and what, whatever are a sign that it might have hurt a bit. That normally you say with Marxists, because you said, Dorian, well, that's the point, it, it, it's groupthink, it reinforces solidarity, it shuts people out from the fact that there are millions and millions, you know, perhaps the overwhelming majority of the country disagrees them. But that was so big, it did feel like it was a bit more than that, and it made uh, an impact. I mean, certainly we had, a, we had a Sunday's issue of The Observer was pretty much a, mm. what the fuck is going on on Brexit, can we please stop this nonsense right now issue? Mm. And absolutely sold out um, um, the highest sales we've had in ages Great. people um, looking for their photo did I make it? <laughs> <laughs> did my placard you, make it? You, so uh, uh, and I think on uh, you know, the converse of that applies if it had been a damp squib frankly then that would have been that, that would have been disastrous it would have been yeah. it would have set us right yeah it needed to be a success. Well, later in the show, we'll be asking what difference that 700,000 turnout will mean and what the Remain campaign can do with all that energy. Plus, the latest in the rancorous battle between two irreconcilable camps that's tearing the country apart, Theresa May versus her own party. When we pressed record, she was still in power, but that was six or seven minutes ago. We could be under <laughs> President <laughs> Gove. And yet more excitement from the borders as no-deal contingency plans bite. The government plans to lease roll-on, roll-off ferries to bring in goods, foods and medicine and other luxuries if France reintroduces customs checks. It's the kind of stuff governments do in a time of war, said one cabinet member, which is fine and normal. All this and more after a few reminders from Ingrid. If you're a new listener, tempted in by the excitement of the People's Vote March, you might like to know that you can get every episode of Romaniacs a day early exclamation mark Uh, pledge a small amount each month on the crowdfunding platform Patreon and we'll send you every episode as soon as it emerges from our podcasting hatchery your support helps keep the show going and you'll get desirable merchandise like Romaniacs mugs and t-shirts and early bird access to our live shows and and in capitals an exclusive weekly column written by one of our panellists as well search Patreon Romaniacs for more information or just go to the Romaniacs Facebook page and if you're a regular listener you can help out by giving us a review and star rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, We are often, not to boast, in the news and politics top 20 on Apple Podcasts, but most of the podcasts there come from well-resourced big organisations like The Guardian or the BBC. (laughs) (laughs) We've only got Uh, George Soros. (laughs) So a review and rating from you will really help. Just go to your app, find us, tap review, and please be kind to us because you know we'll love you forever. Thanks, Ingrid. Now let's take a deep breath and rummage through the Brexit bins. First, the happy story. The People's Vote March, broad and incredible. What was that number, Naomi? At least 700,000. I like the at least there. (laughs) Uh, Onto the streets of London to demand a final say on the Brexit deal. Social media was full of pictures of people travelling from as far as Orkney and southern France. And it was a good day for Romaniacs. Not for me, because like Nick, I had to look after children, (laughs) who are apparently our future. (laughs) But everyone else seemed to have fun. Friend of the show, David Schneider, was photographed in one of our T-shirts. Alex Andre was mobbed by listeners like 
the Harry Styles of Remain. He really was. <laughs> <laughs> he had a good T-shirt as well. Yeah. Uh, our good friends Jason Hazley and Jill Morris, who write Philomena Kunk and the Grown Up Ladybird books, wrote a set of banner slogans for us, including We'll Get Behind It When You Explain It, I Don't Want to Spend the Next 20 Years in Caps Lock, <laughs> in Caps Lock, and the pithy Farage Shall Not Wither Them. They were downloaded 4,000 times. We saw them everywhere, including a predictably snide story on Spite complaining about middle-class puntastic placards because real salt-of-the-earth working-class people like the staff of Spite don't believe in puns. Our producer, Andrew Harrison, spoke to a couple of listeners on the way. Hello, this is Andrew. I'm in the crowd at the march. It's very early on, and I've run into a family of listeners, not just a listener, but a family of (laughs) listeners. Hello. Introduce yourselves. Uh, so we are uh, Kirsty and Dan and our two kids, and we are a German-Scottish-Romanian family. And you are well turned out in your Romaniacs gear as well, which I was very impressed to see. What, what do you think is going to happen today? You've got, have you got high hopes? Uh, yeah, I, I, I have cautiously optimistic hopes. I just hope that there's, I hope there's more people here than there were on the last march. I think there's going to be. It's looking that way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's yeah. looking really crowded. So my, my big fear was fatigue, but yeah. I think that's, it doesn't look that way just now. And the, the weather is so beautiful, so I think people will yeah. just take that as an opportunity. And yeah. there is a bit of a sense of optimism as well, isn't it? Oh, like yeah, it sort totally. of feels like we're kind of on the front foot here now. Yeah, which it's, is great. There is the slight fear of the chaos that we're going through, but <laughs> it looks like we are kind of sort of maybe, maybe making the run in. Um, do you think that this is bringing new people into the, the world of like sticking up to the EU? I mean, I think what was really good to hear on the podcast was the um, the leavers who are now Remainers. Yes. And I think that's the kind of group that it's most exciting to hear from and hear about. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm just hoping that that is uh, that, that those people are also starting to get involved with the yeah. The revolution. Absolutely, and, yeah. And I think this narrative of um, Brexiters deserve a vote, Remainers deserve a vote, we all deserve a vote. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you can you can see that being more visible now, and hopefully some people will have taken that on board and join us today. Absolutely. We'll probably have to turn it off now because I can hear the agents of the state are hovering above our heads, <laughs> ready to, I don't know, put us on CCTV or something. Right, enjoy the march. Thank you Cheers. very much. Thank you. Live at the People's Vote March there, Andrew Harrison. Nick, the immediate comparison that people made, which was a bit awkward for Alastair Campbell, uh, was that a million people marched against the Iraq war and that didn't change government policy. Um, and I suppose because that was the previous, you know, obviously that was the biggest and the last one of this sort of size. Is that a, is that a fair comparison? Is there anything to be drawn from that? Uh, yeah, it's fair bit. I mean, uh, big marches don't necessarily change policy. Uh, there's lots of differences, though. First of all, there was majority for parliament and people forget majority in the country for the Iraq war. Uh, on this issue, there is no majority in parliament. I mean, parliament is split in so many ways, which we'll perhaps get to. It will probably take you until well until tea time to just go through all different ways parliament is split and stymied. And second, there is no majority in the country for this. There was a majority in 2016, which was probably gone as... And I thought the, the justification for Marx, what takes it out of just groupthink and self-satisfaction and self-celebration, is that as the political situation deteriorates, and as... And I always say the biggest lie about Brexit, far bigger than 350 million on, on a bus, was that this is easy, that this would be easy. Um, I, 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 what I find genuinely unforgivable about the people who've brought this on this country is their sheer frivolity, their dilettantism, that I keep banging on this, no-one else seems to care, but if you go through the Head of Vote Leaves blog posts, 
there's one you know, before the referendum where it says, on no account must we present a manifesto. On no account must we say what Brexit <clears throat> means, because that would open up to criticism from our enemies. And in any case, we, people on our side, don't even agree on what Brexit is. And that is just, that to me is so shocking that you can take your country possibly over a cliff, certainly into uh, an unknown future with making a virtue of the fact that, that, that you have no plan. And I think as the consequences of the frivolity, which I think is very much tied to the frivolity of the English upper class who haven't got skin in this game, whatever happens, mm. um, as that becomes clearer over the next few months, the marks will resonate and that, and it will it mm. will... It has helped already, and I'm sure will help build and some pressure. While I agree with you, and you know, marches often don't change policy, and of course, it didn't at all with Iraq. Um, I, I do agree with what Rachel Sylvester wrote in the Times yesterday. That was Tony Blair's reputation never really recovered. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that will you know, be in sharp focus for some of the politicians after, well, after the weekend. Because the phrase you often heard about the Iraq march was that that uh, Blair ignored it, and of mm. course, not doing exactly what the marchers want is not ignoring it. Mm. And from people who were around at the time, it said, well, no, it, it wasn't ignored. It was definitely like, he did notice. But like Nick says, then you also weigh it up. What's your support in Parliament? Yep. What's your support in the country? And so this sort of, I, th I think there's a broader question about how people talk about marches and mm. demonstrations mm. as if, if there is not an instant change of policy, they've somehow yeah. failed. So, uh, yeah. so, someone pointed out on Twitter uh, yesterday, I think it was Adam Bolson, feel forgive me if, I'm, if I've got this wrong, or maybe Dan Snow, that although marches don't change government policies, mm. riots have a really good history. <laughs> thing so I think, I think next time, Comrades, what you need to do is stop clashing a few weight through its branches and uh, we'll soon get this sorted because out. Because of no-deal Brexit, I am absolutely rising and I'm putting that on record right here right now. <laughs> but I think, and I think that's I, the point about you know, marches and what difference do they have? I think, I think what it almost certainly must have done is embolden those MPs who are speaking oh, out yeah. in favour of a, of, a, of, a, of a final say on, on, on the final deal. Mm -hmm. um, I felt a sense of, in PMQs, I felt a sense that people, they're no longer just sort of shouting into the void and they're sort of lo loonies. There's 700,000 people. Mm -hmm. they, they, can visit, they can see those 700,000 people in their mind's eye when they're mm -hmm. standing up and asking questions about... about um, and, a, a, a and also, we're in, in an absur absurd position in Britain in that a majority of MPs who are elected representatives either think Brexit is bad for the country or think, in a rather English way, it's just not worth the trouble. Mm. You know, it doesn't solve any of the problems uh, that Britain faces. It increases, mo it, it accentuates most of them and then adds some new ones just for fun, um, to paraphrase Larkin. You know, it's... Um, <laughs> it's it, and... On their own, without referendum, they'll just say, stop it. Yeah. Just stop it. This is insane. It's dividing the country in the most extraordinary way. There was a, I don't know, did you see a poll that came out earlier this week that 70% of people now identify as Remainers or Leavers, where only about 30% yes, identify yeah. as Labour as Conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, new, this is the new Cavaliers and Roundheads. Yeah, 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 and yeah. it is just for something that an issue that was number six on the list of voters' priorities in 2016, to allow this to just ratchet out of control when you talk about Blair had a majority of whatever it was. He, he, there was a big rebellion, but he had a majority for the Iraq war. There's no 
Mm. On taking referendum into account, there seems to be no majority in Parliament yeah, for anything. If MPs were allowed a free vote, and there's a side of me that guess wishes they'll say, hold on a second, we're representative democracy. Yeah. Mm. We're not some Peronist mm. state where mm. we have referenda and then everyone has, has to follow suit. I think you could say, to hell with this. We're stopping this nonsense yeah. now. Yeah. But yeah, th- that, that's, what, that's what they would do. And, and your point, I thought, was a very good one, that it does embolden people. It does it, give them a bit in, of... In, in, sorry, sorry, yeah, forgive right. me. You know, it, it, and not, not just MPs, but everybody. Mm, yeah. and, and I thought the, the backlash seemed rather feeble. There was, uh, we had, you know, it's, it's middle class, uh, not entirely true. It's all Londoners, not true. And uh, 17.4 million is more than 700,000. Which is, I mean, it's which is a, look, it's saw, a little artificial. Yeah. I saw somebody marching with a placard that said, look, Mum, I've joined the elite. You know, it is, it, <laughs> it is an absolute nonsense to think that it was just full of Londoners. You know, we had coaches coming in from all over the country. Um, you know, there were no doubt thousands who didn't come because of cost, because they work on a Saturday. Um, you know, people who just don't have that kind of money or time and, you know, ability to travel, childcare duties, etc. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what that 700 really, 700,000 really represent is millions and millions and MPs absolutely know it. Um, the thing is what we do next and, you know, great energy at the march, but we need to capitalise on it. And what, as Best for Britain brain, mm. um, should we do to capitalise on it? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the march was undeniably amazing, um, no denying that. What... Nick has alluded to Charles well, by, by, by Remainers <laughs> and uh, Tim Montgomery or all anyone all the great vaguely thinkers of the day. Um, and it, it, the other thing, not only did it embolden Remainers and you know people that voted Remain or who would now vote Remain to you know actually feel like there's hope again, it also emboldened some of the media. Um, well, it certainly woke up some of the media, um, people that weren't reporting anything before. So I think that's important. So we've seen a sort of a bit of a, an attitudinal shift um, and obviously giving all of that confidence to the people who are already on our side. But as Nick said, this is, this is more about parliamentary arithmetic than anything else. So at Best for Britain, we want to stop Brexit. That's our mission. In order to do that, we need, we think, to have another referendum although our mission is to stop Brexit by any democratic means and a referendum is one route to that, but that's the kind of received wisdom on it. In order to secure that people's vote, you need to have defeated Theresa May's deal in the Commons, which means that we are still in a public affairs campaign. It is all about the individual politicians and how they vote. So the absolutely crucial thing that everyone who marched and everyone that they know who agrees with them and couldn't march has to do is to start writing to their MPs, and that was the whole focus of the the uh, video that we did with Ingrid um, so brilliantly. Um, you know, they, they, they need to talk to their MP, they need to go and see them at their constituency surgery, they need to write to them, they need to call them. We've just launched something called finalsay.app and it's a little neat app where you can go and record a voice message to your MP if you don't, if you're not into writing emails which young people aren't, they, they don't really do emails. You know, so there are all different ways that no you can swearing. contact your MP. No and the problem that we know is real is that MPs are telling us they're more likely to be getting a letter about a whale stuck in the Thames than they are on Brexit. People just are not lifting up the phone and logging into their inbox and sending emails to MPs. And until they feel the pressure and feel in their own constituency, 500 people signing a local petition to MP in a constituency that did vote, you know, slightly majority leave and so they're a bit unsure as, as to what to do. 500 people signing a petition saying, vote down the deal 
is actually more impactful on that MP than a million people on a march in the streets of London. What if your so MP is Jay combined, Corbyn? they're great. <laughs> if, if, so, I mean, a, he still needs to hear it for absolute certainty. Um, but, but then no, it's about no using... No swear your, words in good sense. No swear so. words, no swearing if you're going to leave a voicemail. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true, yeah. that's true. But, you know, it is really important that you talk to everyone you know who doesn't live in Islington North and get them to write to their MP too. Because uh, Nick, uh, Nick uh, Jeremy Corbyn actually banned... Is that true that he banned mm. the front bench? Looks like it, yeah. Well, I mean, they weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you think, you know, the new, I suppose the new, new Labour, the far left Labour is such a London project. Uh, of the top six, I mean, John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn, Emily Formery, Keir Starmer, uh, they're all London MPs. And uh, if they were representing their constituents, they would have been on that march. Um, uh, and they weren't, so you'd imagine some kind of order. Mm. But it's, all, it's always hard to tell in these sort of closed mm. communities and of whether they've been censored, whether self-censorship's mm. kicked in and they know what to do without needing to be told, you know, and they know not to go. But... Uh, I think it's awful, but not necessarily surprising. Yeah, not no. um, but, um, you know, I th- there was a huge turnout of the Labour left at the march and there were an enormous number of banners from unions from union members from another Europe is possible which is a very good pro-Corbyn pro-EU I mean I was at the Labour conference and there were people walking around with with love Corbyn love Corbyn hate Brexit and I was thinking what are you going to have next love cigarettes hate lung cancer (laughs) love alcohol hate cirrhosis of the liver you know I mean I I mean it's just not true you can't well you might do but you can't do both I mean you really can't do both So, and I think that that's all very sort of tactical stuff because we need them to vote down the deal. They probably will. I can't imagine him not whipping for them to vote down the deal. Who knows? People say the British left is no good for anything, and I can take that point. And there's a lot of evidence for it. But one thing it used to be terribly good at was accusing its leaders of betraying it and of absolutely hounding them, of making their lives a living hell. They all revere Attlee now, but Attlee had exactly the same thing. Blair did everyone mm. brown. Everyone gets it. And finally, it's this crucial m- moment in British history. The Labour, Labour, Labour Party members forget what they're good at, mm. which is absolutely abusing their leaders and at least standing up for themselves mm. and have all become these North Korean... Yeah, I have to say, though, as well as Labour, I I should also point out that four of the 12 Lib Dem MPs didn't turn up, nor did they put any support on their social media for it either. So just in the interest of balance, our very pro-European party had a third of them missing on the day. Um, Because, you know, well, well, two of them abstained on the vote to trigger Article 50 because they represent Leave constituencies. One of them, I think, is, you know, genuinely a bit unsure about the EU themselves. The other one, I think, was just sort of doing it out of duty to their constituency uh, and the other two um, you know I don't know is the honest answer um, I, they, they, they all all but one represent quite strongly leave constituency but they sorry but they if they were voted in at the last election to Lib Dem surely that I know they, the constituency might have voted leave mm. Does that not mean they had a change of heart? Because Lib Dem were the only Absolutely. Uh, party, the only ticket yeah. that ran on an anti-Brexit. And our research shows full well that you know their, their voters solidly remain and they've got nothing to lose. Right. Well, that's annoying. Which all rather suggests your, your job in getting MPs to vote for a second referendum is it's going to be quite hard. 
It is, yes. It's not easy. Our job is not easy. Uh, and we are doing an insider and an outsider strategy. So we're doing all of that private lobbying with them, showing them the data, running you know, constituency level data to show them exactly how their vote breaks down to try and persuade them, give them that assurance that you know, particularly uh, Labour seats in the north of England that had maybe a you know, 55, 60% leave vote, that when you break down that Labour vote from 2015 and 2017, it is predominantly remain, and the little also, bits of a leave will never vote Conservative. The, the MPs I really respect are not people like Caroline Flint who go around saying, oh, I'm representing my constituents, but uh, Labour MPs like Anna Turley or Phil Wilson or um, there are quite a few in the north of England who say, my constituency voted leave. Mm. I, am, I, I cannot in conscience go along with this because... Brexit is going to hit the north of England the hardest. It can hit north of England, south of Wales, the poorest parts of Britain the hardest. So you know what I do? I have an argument with my constituents. And it's not the end of the world. They don't all run around screaming no, or, or produce crucifixes and garlic. They listen, <laughs> you know, and then they argue back. And it is, it, it, th- that strikes me as what representing democracy should be about. And this idea that that you vote against your conscience. I would love to hear someone ask Caroline Flint or any of these other Labour MPs saying saying um, you know, who are going along with this. I'd love to hear him say, seriously, do you think leaving the single market is going to benefit your constituents? And like, well, that's a question they don't want to answer. And if you say no, you say, well, for goodness sake, you ought to be at the very least arguing for the softest Brexit imaginable, a Brexit in name only, or what are you doing? Why are you in Parliament? Well, before we move on, I did want to raise something that came up after the march. Uh, I saw it through Tom Holland, not fun Spider-Man Tom Holland, who tweeted a thread arguing that we'd be in a better place now if Remainers had been reasonable, at scare quotes, and pushed for a soft Brexit rather than a no Brexit. Uh, and that this is this sort of stop Brexit thing has been a kind of strategic error. That not supported by any of the kind of research... I've done, but no. I'm sure... And the YouGov poll at the weekend showed that there were many more people in favour of uh, people's vote than no deal or soft Brexit. You know, it was... It was it, the the majority there is Do you think that was ever a now. possibility? If, Remainers, if all Remainers had en masse... And it's not like there was a boss who could tell everybody what to do, right, down yeah. to the activist level. Had all just caved in and said, let's work together on a soft Brexit. Would... Surely that wouldn't, it wouldn't, the ERG would not have just gone, all right, fair dues, you know. Of course not. Let's well, and and Open Britain did do that the day after the referendum. They switched their position yeah. immediately to, OK, well, then let's just try, try and get the best possible kind of Yeah, person. I mean, I, um, uh, I have to say I have some sympathy with Tom's point of view. I mean, it is very striking about modern politics how everyone is going for broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone, you know, uh, our side is going for, we want to stay in the EU. Um, uh, uh, the Leave campaign is going for the hardest possible Brexit. Corbyn's going for socialism in one country. Tories are talking about factorism on steroids. You know. And that is because of, of the times we're in. You know, the, the economic system's been discredited. Uh, the constitutional system is all up for grabs. And you can see why people are getting greedy. And so I do have some sympathy with that argument. But, I mean, you rather put your finger on it um, when you said it was, it's just not been on offer. And that's you can't just blame Steve Baker and Boris Johnson and David Davis for that. You have to blame Theresa May. Her huge mistake as a Prime Minister was not to even try to unite the country. She comes in, she gives a Lancaster House speech, she says, no single market, no customs union, no European Court of Justice. Uh, absolutely, you know, is essentially in the Farage position. 
um, absolutely turns her back on 48% of the electorate, turns her back on, though they may not realise it yet, but when the consequences come, moderate levers. And then she's had to row back desperately as she can, as, as the consequences of, of, of what she's done uh, sink in. But it, it simply wasn't on offer. I, it, it, I don't think... I don't think not up to me to tell Best of Britain what to think, and I doubt I'd listen if they did. I don't think you should entirely take it off the table. It may be um, that that compromise hoves into view, but it, it, it hasn't been hasn't on so offer. And actually, and actually you know, if you look at if you look at look at what people like Chuck Romano were saying in the month after, they were saying, "Well, this is what we should be aiming for." Then they stopped saying it because it didn't seem politically possible. Well, Nick's just segued very smoothly into the subject of Theresa May and her ongoing war against her own party. The leaked language got markedly uglier this week with talk of knives being heated up so she doesn't get cold when you stab her. May being told to bring her own noose to a meeting of MPs and warnings that she'll be dead soon. MPs across the House condemned the violent language, but there already said to be enough letters to the 1922 committee to precipitate a leadership contest. What does this say about the, the mindset of the Tory party that in the middle of a crisis, which, as we'll get to, you know, involves sort of running your own ferry uh, now service uh, is contemplating a leadership fight I mean I but just before I answer that particular question I would just like to remind ourselves about the absolute seriousness of this we have already had one political assassination in this country in the last mm. few years the murder of the MP for Batley and Spenjo Cox and this week a bomb was left outside the home of George Soros who obviously is somebody that funds my mm. organisation um, or helps to fund it I mean he absolutely does not entirely fund it that's that's for sure but you know he has funded open society campaigners across the world and this is three weeks after Trump called people protesting against him as funded by Soros so you know, people in in this context, these kinds of threats, these this kind of language is at best crass and at worst can be incredibly dangerous in the hands of crazy people. Um, you know, and 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 so I do just sort of want to make that point on on the Theresa May point. You know, she's surviving day to day, but she does survive. Uh, the 1922 committee she's going in front of them after we record this podcast today who knows whether she'll survive it I suspect she almost certainly will um, because Prime Ministers love staying on at number 10 at all costs whether it was Callaghan whether it was Major whether it was Brown even though it would have paid them to go sooner they don't they cling on because um, the idea that they're concerned with the national interest and not their own sort of self-interest and staying in office as long as possible is of course fanciful so I think it's all largely bluster still I really cannot see them risk losing getting a soft Brexit uh, when it's within reach and they can push for a harder Brexit afterwards I think there's a lot of crying wolf uh, and that she knows it um, of course we should assume nothing uh, but the YouGov poll um, shows us that I just don't think they're going to gift Remainers uh, defeating her and, and getting rid of her at this stage Ingrid May wrote a weirdly personal piece for The Sun this week, headlined, It's not about me, it's about you. She essentially said, stop worrying about the toll it's taking on me. Is the nation really fretting about whether Theresa May is OK? Do you think she's playing to uh, a certain kind of sympathy out there for the, the bind she's in? I mean, uh, it's interesting that, because you can't deny when you look at her, she is visibly... It's etched in her face, it's in her body language. You know, she's, there's no question she's a, she's a person under extreme stress. Um, and I, I can't imagine what it must be like to deal with... I mean, God, can you imagine any single one of us around this table negotiating Brexit must be a constant. People shouting at you from all sides, you pull a thread here and something else unravels over there, and it's just 
It's never ending, um, and I, I deal with stress very badly. I'd need a I need a, I'd need a masseuse following me at all times. I have a lot of tells where I can't play poker, where I just start anxiously rubbing my head. Yeah. Which every time like the you know tariffs come up or something, I'd just be like this, <laughs> really stressed. I'd need scented candles in every single <laughs> negotiation room. Um, but I think uh, you know it, she she is clearly under stress, but and it's hard to, I, as a human being. I sort of empathise with her, but I, I I find it hard to feel too much sympathy because. As Nick was saying earlier, she she's sort of brought it on herself in the sense that she's she's unilaterally made a decision about what the kind of Brexit that she was going to follow, the, her her red lines, almost without consultation. So it's now of her own making, and maybe she'd she'd had more of a sort of Cameronian leadership style, sort of roll, rolled up your your arm sleeves and let's just uh, spitball, uh, you know, with a bunch of guys in a in a, in a room somewhere. Well, that would you, have been slightly. You've less. got the ideas ball. Catch. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes. But then, but you know, because we know a problem shared is a problem halved, and it would have been less on her shoulders. I feel like she's now seeing it through to the bitter end because part of her maybe feels like she she puts herself and us in the situation, so she's got to see it through. So not a huge amount of sympathy, I'm afraid. Nick, there have been all sorts of wild rumours about David Davis, uh, a great fan of the show, being installed as PM, including one uh, scenario where May would remain as Tory party leader, but lazy, glib, delusional, incompetent David Davis would be PM. (laughs) I, I find that hard to imagine, and not just because of my personal antipathy towards David Davis. Um, with which of the sort of war games that you're hearing about actually seem uh, likely? Um, well, I guess, first of all, whatever you find hard to imagine, imagine it. This is, <laughs> this is the state of England now. Um, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I agree with Ingrid. I, I have some sympathy for Theresa May. I think a lot of people do, actually. Um, one thing she hasn't done, and in fact Jeremy Corbyn hasn't done, Philip Hammond hasn't done, no senior politician has done, and she might be in the best position if she did it, is just level with the country. Mm. I mean, just say, look, this is what it means. Here are the options. Um, uh, We can uh, essentially stay in the single market and customs union. That will protect most people's jobs. That will protect living standards. Um, But, you know, Brexit won't mean very much. Um, We'll still be taking quite a lot of stuff from Europe. Or we can have a complete break, but that will hurt. That will hurt. And no one from the Leave campaign onwards has spoken about what the options for Britain are. I think she'll get a lot of respect if she did. She's allowed herself to be defined in, in language that no one's determined. And people are shouting Chuck Checkers with no idea of what Checkers means. You know, why, didn't she, why didn't she call it, well, it's a Brexit, but it's trying to protect uh, manufacturing jobs. It's a Brexit for the north of England. It's a Brexit for South Wales. She doesn't do that. Um, uh, uh, but then no one does. Corbyn doesn't stand up and say that. Uh, Hammond doesn't. No, no people. It's 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 quite. Um, there was a lot of political theory bouncing around in the past decade about. Oh well, if we have referendums, if we have systems, glories, it will be direct democracy, and everything will be more honest. And actually, the result of the twenty sixteen referendum yeah. is the greatest outbreaking of political lying. Yeah. I think. I mean, we've certainly seen in a hundred years. It is extraordinary how how no one wants hard choices. No, no one is prepared to offer the public hard choices. We're the opposite of Churchillian blood, sweat, toil and tears. It's somehow you can have these great events um, 
uh, you can have it all. Is it, is it L'Oreal? Who says you can have it all? Anyway, something. Yeah, no, Cosmo, well, yeah. Cosmo, Cosmo. I'm getting confused. <laughs> it's like we're a nation of Cosmo girls. You know, we think we can have it all, and there'll be no pain. There will be no sacrifice, which has always led me to be, perhaps, a bit paranoid. But to think the backlash when it comes to all of this is going to be very, very ugly. Because people are being deceived, and they weren't just deceived by the referendum. There's been continuous deceit since by, by simply the failure to put out options, by simply failure to explain that, OK, uh, Boris Johnson is saying this, uh, but I, as Prime Minister, have to tell you our best guess is this will mean. Do you want that? It was... <laughs> He's doing, like, a kind of an open fish mouth. <laughs> Even the Daily Mail came out on Mayside with an extraordinary comment piece attacking posturing rebels who were sabotaging the Prime Minister. Obviously, saboteur uh, used to have a different meaning in the mail, leading Brexiters to wail on Twitter that the mail was now basically the Guardian and they would stop buying it. <laughs> Which I found just hilarious. I mean, I'm not very au fait with uh, male criminology. Um, but what does, this, what does this sort of say about, you know, where they, which direction they think their, their reads are going? Because presumably Geordie Gregg would not be doing this if he didn't think there was going to be some support there. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I have to say, a friend of mine uh, said said that all, all uh, when Geordie Gregg took over, said all leavers on the mail are becoming remainers. It's the only way they can remain in their jobs. Um, but uh, you know, you have to swim the tide. What happens? What happens? You notice the mail is not coming out as an anti-Brexit paper. Oh yeah. It's the, it's staying with Theresa May, which actually Paul Dacre did as well. It's not it's it's not such a big change, but it's it's toned down the rhetoric. As I understand it, what worried Lord Rothermere was not so much the Brexit, but the fact that advertisers who he regarded as absolutely central to Middle England readers like Centre Parks, Marks and Spencers, weren't advertising anymore because it, it, the mail was just getting too nasty and too wild. And, these, and it was particularly immigration, I think, yeah. the anti-immigrant... But also, I, 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 and I don't approve of these at all because I know how... Corporations try mm. to use their advertising power to silence journalism in the public interest. But these these campaigns to tell whoever it is, John Lewis, to boycott the mail, mm. they do have an effect. So it's about the money, it's always, yeah, it's always, yeah following the um, money. Yeah. But it's interesting because on left and right in Britain, there is this Chomsky and propaganda model of journalism. You know, people say, the re on the right, people say the reason people are liberal is because the BBC brainwashes them. Or on the left, people say, we would have had socialism decades ago if it wasn't for the tabloid press mm. brainwashing the working class. Well, this is a bit of a test of that. Mm. I've never believed mm. it for a moment. Mm. I don't think it's remotely true. But, you know, uh, will the male at least softening make a difference? I think, it, I think it'll make a difference politically. I think it'll make a difference in the best for Britain's lobbying that suddenly yeah. the, the right wing of the Tory party has lost a very reliable ally. It's still got the Express and the Telegraph Sun. and the Sun, mm. but it's, I think that will make a difference. Mm. But mm. whether... I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a switch in male readers. I think it's a switch at the top and walked out by other factors. I think it might also be a little bit of a portent. You know, they, they can just see that Brexit isn't going to easily happen, so there is an element of sort of hedging a bit with that as well. Will we buy behind the mail now, Ingrid? Will I be buying the mail? Switching to the mail? The new saw-away remaining mail? No, that's what my entire family already supported. Uh, <laughs> more, than, more than enough, so I don't need to. But I, is there a sense also that they can see 
that if a no deal happens as a result of this sort of sabotaging, we'll, and we have a Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister, that that is a genuine fear of the mail? Is that something else? Is that something that is a genuine consideration? I, 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 I mean, I was writing the other week. I mean, it is extraordinary how people who call themselves Conservatives are prepared to allow everything they're against to happen or risk really? it. Well, I mean, they could have Brexit now. I mean, seriously, if they're prepared to compromise, if, 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 if the right wing of the Tory party were prepared to just say to May, what, as Michael Gove sort of has, whatever you, whatever you can get, we'll accept, we just want out. Yeah. There'd be no point in, in people campaigning for a second referendum. It will go through. Yeah. They're meant to believe in the union. They're threatening that. Uh, the case for however complicated it is and how far it is, you, there's a reason Scottish nationalists and Irish Republicans have a, have, have a spring in their step. They can see that the Britain that people chose to stay in is changing and no one... Uh, and Scots, the Scotland... The, the Britain-Scotland voted to remain in 2014 will no longer exist after Brexit, so they've yep. got a new argument. There's an argument for a united Ireland, which some Protestants might start thinking about because they, still, they, they, they will get... EU citizenship. Long way off, but you can, they're risking mm. that, and they're risking Jeremy Corbyn. So will that reduce the Daily Mail readership if we split off into four different nations? Maybe that's another reason. Oh, no, there's, always, no, there's no. different Daily Mails in Scotland and Ireland with entirely different contexts. Even the whole Daily Mail. It's great fun But, you know, well, they're, they're doing all that, and that is, that is a kind of fanaticism mm. uh, that... Tories used to associate with the Marxist left, which is mm. now wholly infected the right wing of yes. their party. Yes, they, they will burn the house down for, for the this, sake of their yeah. idea. Yay. <laughs> Finally, it's time to head for the ramparts of Siege Britain. <laughs> as the Transport Department tells the Cabinet, it's putting wartime emergency freight measures in place in case of no deal. Great, yeah. <laughs> Lovable Transport Secretary Chris Grayling is planning on leasing <laughs> roll-on, roll-off ferries to bring well, imports right, <laughs> to London, Tilbury and Liverpool. If the 85% of our freight that comes in via Dover and the Channel Tunnel becomes jammed by customs checks. Robert Peston described the Cabinet as shocked and reported the announcement was a bombshell in a meeting that contained lots of dull stuff. I like his, <laughs> I like his technical journalist term there. Lots of, what else was it? I don't know, lots of dull stuff. <laughs> Wasn't listening. David Lammy later said that Brexit had become like a declaration of war on ourselves. Uh, can anybody here explain why Chris Grayling, <laughs> who appears to have no talent for anything, <laughs> just why Chris Grayling. is still in position? <laughs> Like, I don't know, like, it's, it's obviously man inspiring. Even, even his own civil servants behind his back call him failing grayling. Wow. Because he, he failed at prisons, he's failing to keep the trains running on time. Like that, It's preposterous to imagine that somebody that can't get the 12.57 from Brighton to a time can suddenly manage the freight of, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of ships annually, bringing millions and millions you know of tonnes of stuff. You don't want the name Chris Grayling and just... the word wartime close <laughs> no, together, no, do you? No, no, we don't. <laughs> or food, get food <laughs> on my table. <laughs> vital, <laughs> vital medicine, all things. <laughs> you don't want in the same sentence. On both sides of Parliament now, talent is no longer the first priority to getting on the front bench. I mean, May has to have remainers and leavers and perfectly balanced, and that's all that matters, not whether you're any good at your job. On the Labour side, um, it's whether you can stomach or be loyal to Jeremy Corbyn. So on the back bench of Parliament, you see all these MPs who are really good and, and talented, and you think... Well, why aren't you running the country? Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and there's no chance, and, and there's no chance, no chance of them getting near power. I, I made a joke about this uh, um, the other day, and saying on the one hand, the right says if there's a second referendum, there'll be violence on the streets, riots on the streets. 
but then turn around and assume that if the British don't get essential medicines and food, we'll mm. all develop yes. a stiff upper lip and put our shoulders Decay back and, and take it on the chin. And I'll be first on the beach. It's, all right. <laughs> it's what we voted for. Yeah, yeah. And, and, pe- and people are pointing out to me, this is a country where Kentucky Fried Chicken cu- customers yep. phone the police when their local KFC ran out of nuggets. Totally fair. And, you know, totally fair. We are not, we're not, that people are not going to take this well. And to go back to what you were saying earlier, this why the softening of the male matters. Because it's quite clear, if you read the rhetoric of the right, they will never take responsibility for what they've done, ever. And they will say, they, they will try and pretend it's 1940 and we're on the White Cliffs of Dover and the continent is punishing us. It's not our fault. You cannot blame uh, the Leave campaigners. You cannot blame Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage and David Davis. We're in, we're in retreat from the evil people. The, it, these evil people have done, done this to us. And without the male on their side, that gets a bit harder. Mm. Naomi, you speak to the people. Do I? Um, <laughs> you do. Um, if we're talking about drugs, food, vital NHS supplies... Mm. Um, this is the kind of thing that if you'd said it in 2016, it would Project have been... Fear, Project Fear. Project yeah. Fear. Now it's sort of happening, and is it is it is it cutting through, or is it, I think... Was it was it last week or the week before that you... Um, that someone mentioned the idea of test Brexit, where it was like just yes, two... Yes, it was me. Yeah, it was you. And it was just like two weeks. Roll play Brexit for, for a fortnight. And, and then they go... <laughs> then they yeah. can oh, shit. Or, or roll it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, have, have Brexit in the East Midlands, but not in the rest of the country. Yeah. A, bit like, a bit like universal credit, you know. Yeah, <laughs> Let's God. see how it goes. Yeah. Well, have, have you had a bad time in the East Midlands? Yeah. <laughs> they voted for it. Yeah. Like, like, they, they rolled poll tax out in Scotland, yeah. and that's what killed it for the rest of the country. But why does this not So it, no, OK, so when you, when you take the average voter, I, I, and obviously, you know, what, what do we really mean by that? But the, the average voter still doesn't believe that anyone would actually let this happen. It, they're beginning to get slightly more concerned about it, but still assuming that there is no parliamentary majority for no deal, so that at some point someone will intervene and stop it. Um, it works slightly better with older, soft conservative, soft leave voters. They, they get very, very worried, particularly about any kind of security implications, and obviously they tend to be older, so are more reliant on medication and drugs that come from abroad and are more likely to uh, you know, be needing all of these, you know, extra isotopes and things that we're just all of a sudden not going to be able to get. Um, but but it, it's not it's not the thing that's cutting through. The only thing that is cutting through is very, very, very local issues delivered by a messenger who is very, very local to them. Yeah. Which is what your campaign would have to be if it, uh, we ever get a yes, second referendum. Indeed. Ingrid, so one theory is that people don't actually believe that this will, this will happen until it happens. Um, but then there's also a lot of kind of, uh, you know... We talked about it before, you know, the blitz talk. Um, do you think some people actually sort of get quite turned on by the idea of World War Two cosplay <laughs> with sort of victory pie and oh Glenn Miller and, and sort of I, sh- and shared hardship? I am absolutely convinced. If you looked at the bookshelves of every single person, one of the, the main architects behind Leave the Leave campaign, they would all of them have at least one Winston Churchill autobiography, if not five. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson having, having written With one himself. Battle of Britain commemorative plates. Of course, yeah. Maybe a bit of, yeah, another autobiography of Phil Marshall Montgomery or something. You know, that that, that kind of, you know, Naomi, I think we've talked about it before, that it, Brexit does feel like a very masculine endeavour and enterprise. And this sort of language of violence surrounding it comes almost, is, is almost exclusively male. And this sort of fantasy of, of you know, the male hero... Uh, 
just sabotaging, as Nick was saying earlier, just fucking shit up for the sake of it. Mm. Because they didn't get their go. They didn't get their go on the battlefield. They want That's to prove they want to prove that they, you know, given the chance, they would be leaders of men. And we're all suffering as a result That's of these kind of weird, weird delusions. Field Marshal Grayling. He, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> he'd, be no. he'd be mentioned as a secret for soon poem, wouldn't he? <laughs> no, no, but it's such a good point because it's the people I mean I had business in my childhood. It's people who didn't fight in the Second World War, which is still the great yeah. national event in British history. Yeah. They, were, they didn't fight. Uh, they were either very young or weren't even born. But even in my childhood, you might say, Nick, you surely can't be this old. But even, <laughs> in, even, even, even in my childhood, the Second World War was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, in films, yeah, in books, on television, series like mm. Colditz and um, uh, Secret Army. It was just, it's still well into the 80s. It dominated their, their lives. And they, of course, you're quite right. It's it's for it's for it's for toy soldiers. Yeah. It's for people who've never actually and done it, done it, and uh, or experienced yeah. hardship. And what's, or, yeah, and what's so frustrating for them? It must be, but this is not a war. This is a negotiation, and that's boring. And they're getting frustrated with the EU's reaction, which the EU must be totally bemused. We're treating it like a war because they know it's just it's, a, it's basically reams and reams of A4 paper. It's a very boring negotiation. I, I mean, I remember right at the start of this, I did a debate for a standpoint or prospect or something like that. And there was a, a former British ambassador on there. And he suddenly started talking but about a Eurozone crisis. He said, but this would be good because it will weaken our enemies. I said, I said, I said hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. These are not our Germany and France are not our no. enemies. Yeah. What is the matter with you? Yeah. Yeah. We've got enough enemies mm. in the world without you going off and yeah. going off social. But of course, in their mind, they are. I mean, people joke about them ranting about the EU, SSR. Actually, when I say them, I mean the Foreign Secretary. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or comparing it, comparing the EU to Nazi Germany. Yeah. But in their mind of 1940, yeah, yeah, 1940 yeah. they never saw this is the heroic the moment they yeah, never, yeah, yeah. They never yeah. shared. It is. They want well, to be moving little figures around a map, oh, don't yeah. they, with all those sticks? Just before we move away from this whole sort of toxic masculinity point, which applies to some of the Brexiteer women as well, it's, it, yes. the, the language I is being used by women as well. There's such yeah. a thing as toxic femininity. No one ever talks about that. It's, I'm just trying to get some gender balance on we, this show. We, 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 we can come back to it, but my point is um, everybody should go and look at um, Simeon Brown, who works for Channel 4 News as Twitter feed. He's got a, a, a clip from their show where he did a piece that, who said it, drill MC or MP, because uh, drill MCs have been banned and they're being prosecuted for some of their lyrics, enticing violence. And when you put the MP's words about, oh, I'm going to knife her in the back, I'll knife her in the front, all of this, yeah. when you put that to a drill... Uh, MC rapping those lyrics, you literally can't tell who's saying it, whether it's a member of the House Sorry. of Commons or, you know, a, a, you know, a, an MC. Our special guest this week, as you've heard, is the great Nick Cohen, whose Observer column is the reason we get up early on Sunday morning and have the rest of our day ruined. Thoughts. <laughs> 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 Nick, as a, as a columnist, if for nobody else in the country, Brexit is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, you went in very hard. Uh, there was a couple of great pieces recently. One, the Brexit fanatics go for broke, which we were talking about the, the way that conservatives want to be as, as unconservative as possible. Um, and you also gave David Cameron a kicking. Um, we just, do you think we spend enough time reminding everyone what a, uh, 
a complacent failure he is and how much you summed up not just him but an entire English mindset which is which is different actually it's different to the fanatics mindset isn't it it's almost yeah. a sort of the opposite it's like everything is a game yes and uh, it's almost like that seems as destructive as the yes well other. I mean for, well it is and it is it is you know uh, nothing really matters um, you, you have to be quite rich to have this mindset incidentally nothing really matters um you shouldn't get too excited. Uh, once the game's over, uh, you should shake hands and, and get on with it. As so, uh, and get on, be friends. As you know, Boris Johnson is still friends with uh, David Cameron. Um, you treat England like it's a club, and not a country. You know, uh, with its cliques, with its mm-hmm. uh, uh, code words, with. Uh, uh, our famous sense of humour, which, as I said, we're going to need as the rest of the world laughs at us, um, and and a fatal dilettantism. The word I keep coming back to that you know you can, as prime minister, just spend your entire time as prime minister uh, be defining yourself against the EU, forming alliances with weird and really quite nasty parties like Law and Justice. Never apart from one moment when he described UKIP as fruitcakes and loons and then backing off, but never apart from that, taking on the right wing or making an argument to the public about why we need to stay in Europe. And then just think, oh, well, I'm so charming. I went to Eton. I did essays at Oxford. What I'll do is I'll just call a referendum, uh, turn my arguments on, uh, on my head and I can wing it. And uh, I think historians are going to be very, very hard on him. His fellow politicians, incidentally, I talk to are, 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 are a bit like Ingrid. They actually have they have some sympathy for me. I'm, I'm talking Labour people, not not uh, the Conservatives who are deep into bloodlust and civil war now. Um, and it's all getting you know very um, uh, 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 medieval. Um, but Labour politicians, quite a lot of them say, I've got some sympathy for me. You know, it's not her mess. She clearly wants to do something else as Prime Minister. But obviously, this is the be all and end all for her Premiership. But Cameron. You know, he just... Historians who write that book will not write a conventional history. I mean, they will start in 2005. They will look at things that were barely registered at the time. They'll start in 2005 when he wins the Tory leadership by promising to pull the Tory MEPs out of the European People's Party, which is the main centre-right Having written a very xenophobic manifesto for Howard, it was written by Cameron. Indeed, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But it it will all be that. It will be... I mean, I think the same will be said about the British left, about their failure to realise what was growing on the left wing in Britain, or this very strange post-socialist willingness to go along with any tyrants as long as they're anti-Western regardless whether they're left or right wing and then they're overthrown by Corbyn and you, 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 you could write the same book about Cameron it's not the book he is writing, which he's postponed to next year But um, <laughs> How's he going to write? I mean that is, a, that is a tough task to end Then <laughs> I mean, oh, it wasn't what? my fault. <laughs> yeah. no, Oopsie I, daisy. I mean, he, in some ways, he's the biggest loser out of all of this. He's the biggest he victim. He really isn't. He is the biggest yeah. loser. <laughs> Seriously. Such a multi I, 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 I think the British working class is the biggest loser. <laughs> yeah, no, the table, worst Prime Minister, historically then, who do you think will be people at back the worst Prime Minister? May or Cameron? Oh, God. Um, I think Cameron, without a doubt. Yeah, Cameron. I mean, May, 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 May's great error, which has two, as I said earlier. One, not trying to unite the country and, and, and to Lancaster outspeak, and two, 
the election when she had no manifesto and, frankly, is not a campaigning politician. But <laughs> Brexit, if it goes ahead, and we trust it won't, but if it goes ahead, this is a massive thing in British history. I mean, it's like Lord North losing the colonies. It's, it is... It is you, you have to go... I, I, Chamberlain was Chamberlain worse? Well, you know, Churchill still had him in his war cabinet. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know. This is, this is, this is, so it is such a big deal. And he walked into it with such a, a really quite contemptible... Uh, Enti- casualness and entitlement. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, and, you know, even, things, even the stupidest tactics of it all smacked of that entitlement and that, you know, uh, upper-class toffism to hold a referendum to hold a public vote on an issue that will be whipped up by national sent- sentiment, nationalistic sentiment, in the middle of an international football tournament. Because to a rugby-playing toff like him where football isn't even on their... You know, it was stupid things like that that just showed he didn't understand people, he didn't understand the country. Well, I mean, middle of, but more to the point, the middle of an international refugee crisis, as like, well, which Europe hasn't as seen. Well. And what, course, and what but he both, didn't foresee that in the way you didn't um, know that there was the It Europe. strikes me what both Cameron and May have done is put party above the country, both of them, because they both, neither of them sort of slapped down Boris Johnson or Michael Gove when they had the chance because they were afraid... They, they don't want there to be a rift within the party that's unhealable. I'd be amazed to see at this stage a politician put country before party. Well, they never well, do, really. at this stage, <laughs> well, no, but, no, but at this stage, to not do so yeah. is, is, neglect, is neglect of the highest order and, and treasonous. Mm. Uh, in my humble opinion, <laughs> and because I mean, it's too. This is too serious, and, and, and maybe that's what we're going to end up with—an yeah. alternative government. Because maybe that you know, maybe and, and and then that is a duty that falls on all of our parliamentarians to think about whether the time is now for some kind of national unity government. Well, maybe this is uh, akin uh, to uh, war uh, now. I wouldn't. I mean, interesting. We uh, there's a rather terrifying thing the Observer does to people at party conferences. There's, the editor, Paul Webster, Andrew Rawnsley, me, Toby Hampton, we take someone out to lunch, and it's like an interrogation. And we took the uh, Charles Grant from the Centre of European Reform, and he, 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 and we said to him, look, Charles, you know everyone in Whitehall, Berlin, Paris, Brussels, no one knows more about Brexit than you, not even Dorian. No one. (laughs) (laughs) We want you to roll up all your experience and tell us one thought we must keep in our minds. And he just said, no one knows anything. And and it it is absolutely true. I wouldn't... You know, you could see if... With the parliamentary, you look at the composition of the Commons, it's a bit hard, but a national government could happen. Who knows? Again, as I was saying to Dorian earlier, don't rule things out. Mm. Well, one of the... uh, Talk about sort of cross-party action. Um, one of the complaints that I noticed uh, some friends of mine, in very much in the I'm a Remainer, but I'm annoyed by literally everything that Remainers are doing, that that annoying category, um, sort of criticising the use of kind of uh, ex-politicians or, you know, veteran politicians or AKA has-beens, you know, Gordon Brown, John Major, Tony Blair's obviously got his own sort of set of baggage. Um, my reaction was like, well, how do you... How do you sort of, one, how do you function without anybody, any sort of yeah. ex-politicians? It can't just be purely grassroots. And two, do you not want ex-prime ministers to speak up? And, I, you know, but even if, obviously, you know, John Major speaks up and then there's like loads of kind of tweets just going, well, John Major did this terrible thing. It's like, I mean, is that, do you just do it anyway? Do you think yeah. that the baggage gets in the way or do you think they should just do it anyway? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Blair asked me, Blair had this weird thing before he started speaking in public. He, 
he talked to lots of people and he talked to me and he said, do you think I should talk in public? And I said, yeah, of course you should. And he said, he said, um, he said, well, you know, lots of people hate me. I said, yeah, lots of people hate you. Uh, I hate quite a lot of things you did, but you know, some people will just hate you whatever you do. Other people will hate you on, on Iraq and I know private finance initially even listening to you on this. Some people will just listen. Get on with it. And particularly when you're a former Prime Minister, in the case of Blair and Major, they negotiated with the Irish government and with the parties in Northern Ireland a peace to a vile war which had gone on for 30 years, killed 3,000 people, maimed God knows how many more, and they, can, they have every right to say... Brexit is putting this in danger, and they have done it, and they have done the most awful terms. My, part of my criticism of Cameron last week is, Lord knows if this is true, but I was told by politicians who bump into him as he scrolls the boulevards of West London <laughs> that, um, that he actually believes in, in soft Brexit. He believes in staying in the single market. Well, all right, then. Say so, man. You know, speak out. Say your piece. Yes, he'll get lots and lots of abuse. Well, so what? You know, you do have a duty to to say your piece, not not to be on the radio every five minutes talking about, but on big questions. And I think they, former they, prime ministers have I think to speak out when they act in unison. It, it helps even more. So I think a platform that has. Brown and Blair and Major, you know, all together. I think that is so much more powerful you, than when yeah. it's just one of them out on their own. Mind you, I asked, I asked the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the people who are leading, you know, your mm. your campaigns mm. and other campaigns, mm. uh, you know, whether they would welcome Cameron's support. Mm -hmm. And lots of them were going, God, and force that. Mm. <laughs> um, but mm. but you know, it doesn't matter. He should he should speak. And he shouldn't, if, if that's what he believes. I mean, he, uh, I, I, as I said, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but perhaps psychologically, he can't. The, the justification is yeah. this is a moment of national crisis, but perhaps psychologically, he can't face the fact of it's a national crisis. And I've been caused by my own fault. bloody stupidity. Yeah, yeah, exactly, it's hard. He can't show his face around these parts anymore. Well, I mean, certainly not in this studio. You'd have very stiff words to say. And is there any scenario in which the Tory party emerges not uh, discredited and divided? Is there... What's the, what's the sort of optimum scenario for those guys? Well, no, I mean, I, for me... Do you know what? I, I've got to the point now where... I, I would accept, and I would have accepted probably after the, the, the vote, if we had gone about it, if the Tory party had gone about it in a sensible way and said, look, it's going to be a long process, it's going to take years, but we'll do it, uh, then I would have, I'd have been behind that. But the way it's been dealt with now, if they push us to a point where it's no deal, and I don't think, I don't think no deal will happen, but the, the, if, it, if, if it was pushed to that point, I think they will be decimated for... A, a, you know, I mean, people forget, voters forget quickly, but I think they will be decimated and they, it'll be years before they're back. Uh, people won't forget, basically. If, we're, if they're literally food shortages and, and medicine uh, shortages, um, I mean, it doesn't get much more serious than that. But I mean, there's bins, uh, bin so, bags in the street. I mean, I, that, I don't, more importantly, yeah. worst of all... I don't want to bore listeners with something that I've said a few times, but we've already had a realignment of the electorate. That has happened. It is now on this open-closed axis and the political parties aren't yet catching up. And I think 
we will see a re- we will have to see a realignment of party politics following some kind of Brexit, particularly if Jeremy Corbyn does not change his position and allows Brexit to happen. And you know, and I can see it happening with with the Conservative Party as well. We will see some kind of fragmentation, and and you know, and it's overdue and it needs to happen. Um, so you know, I I think there's a lot of uh, you know ridiculous statements coming out from the Conservatives which is just classic Tory management whether they're talking about you know house building and re- in reaction to the rent quake that, that helped deliver um, Jeremy Corbyn's relative success last year um, they've been in charge now for eight years and it is all too little too late um, and it's not going to wash it's a kind of smoke and mirrors agenda rather than any kind of you know social uh, uh, intervention agenda um, and and uh, voters really are nowhere near as stupid as most politicians think they are Nick, I know you're not an, an oh Jeremy Corbyn scarf wearing kind of guy mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what do you think of sort of, do you think that this is bound to, whether you believe it should or shouldn't um, sort of bound to benefit Labour that whatever happens yeah, the Tories so. are going to be sort of screwed well, I th- well <coughs> yes, I mean because they're in opposition they're not taking the decisions and if you'd asked me um, six months ago, I would have given some kind of catty, satirical thing about just how stupid progressives in Britain are. Don't they realise Corbyn's been, Corbyn McDonald been in favour of Brexit all their lives, that they've got this weird Benite ver- version of socialism, which is very unusual. I mean, on the continent, Marxist and post-Marxist parties are still pro-EU. Um, uh, um, but it's this, it's tied, go back to what you're saying about entitlement, it's tied with English particularism and the kind of left version of the imperial myth of grandeur. Um, now I'm not so sure. Now I think the penny is really dropping with a lot of people that, you know, partly for tactical reasons, you know, they don't want to take a clear position, uh, you know, because of, uh, they fear that it, it, it will lose some seats in the north, but also because, you know, Disagree with him, I do. Corbyn and Macdonald do do believe in socialism in one country. They don't believe in the EU. They never have done. Um, so you know, and as people start to realise it, uh, I think it might hurt them. And do you know what might, what might the good that might come out of this actually, if people are disillusioned with both the Tory Party and the Labour Party as I am and have been. Maybe more people will vote green because we're all going to be dying in twenty years' time anyway. <laughs> so actually, but in all seriousness. There is another. There is another issue that's facing all of us next, mm-hmm. and yeah, and there is another party. There is another option. Labour. I've been so disappointed in Labour. I, I voted Lib Dem in the last elections because I Labour. I felt weren't representing me, um, and I've never quite forgiven them for that. What, Nothing, what, not there's anything what, wrong what, with Lib Dem. What, what, uh, uh, one consequence of the second referendum, um, which is vote. W- w- uh, one reason, uh, the so-called second referendum. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, final uh, say. Final say. God, the BBC drives me bloody mad. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah, so yeah, yeah. critical, you know. I mean, they, they start with so-called Islamic State, and what are they going to do next? The so-called Democratic Republic of Congo. The alleged Netherlands, you know. I mean, what? Uh, that's, um, <laughs> but anyway, but one consequence of that could be is both parties will smash up, yeah. Yeah. split up, yeah. and yeah. not before time. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah. They've both been captured by their cranks, and their creeps mm-hmm. who are in control. Uh, neither of them are addressing uh, the great mm-hmm. problems of the country. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the slight problem we have is that Remain voters are fractured across so many parties, whereas Leavers tend to be within the Brexit Party, the Conservative Party. So, um, you know, although they are less likely to turn out and vote with our first-past-the-post system and those voters being fractured across, I think we're, we're really overdue exactly that kind of realignment you're talking about. I mean, this is a this is a 
uh, this is a difficult question to ask you. But um, when we sort of look at, you know, say 50 years time, people looking back at this period, uh, I've just been sort of reading quite a lot of kind of very, very hysterical stuff from the mid 70s where there was a similar kind of like, you know, polarization and anxiety and yeah. people thinking about the death of democracy and da da da. Um, and that kind of like reached a settlement, not a settlement that I was particularly <laughs> happy with, but it did reach a settlement. How long do you think that it would take for whatever the, you know, f- for this kind of moment of constant crisis and flux and uncertainty? And is there going to be, how long is it going to take? Is there going to be a, are there going to be party splits? Is there going to be a new centrist party, et cetera, et cetera? How long do you think it's going to take before things reach some kind of uh, stability? Well, if you take the example of Thatcher's election victory in 79, there was a crisis that begins in 1968 with Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, with dock strikes, with uh, and rolls on throughout the 70s and effectively goes on until 1985, the defeat of the miners' strike. So, yeah. so it can take quite a long 17 time. Years. Yeah. <laughs> so 17 years from now, what's that? Yeah. Uh, uh, 2035. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Pretty Great much stuff. the time frame the Brexiteers tell us it'll be yeah. before things yeah. start getting better. Yeah. Do you, do you want to, in some way, because in some way, I because we're so obsessed with Brexit, I think it's fair to say all of us here. Um, I there is part of me that thinks I can go for No Deal. Let's do it. Let's see what happens. Mm. Bring it on. But this is the day. And actually, yeah. that's of course not what we want. I think what's going to happen is much more boring, and the fact that there won't nothing will happen. It's going to be years. It's going to take years. It's going to be transition. So we lose our fight. Oh, but God, but so former depressing. guest David Allen Green's thing is like, look, the only way to lance this boil yeah. is to let Brexit happen. But obviously, and part of me thinks, yeah, do you know what? If I was like standing back and this wasn't my country, yeah. I'd go, that's probably what needs to happen mm. politically. Yeah. But when you start actually thinking about As a people losing their jobs... Yeah. And civil unrest. I mean, I, I, funny enough, everyone goes on about elite Remainers. Actually, the most elitist people I know who voted Remain, uh, who aren't, would never listen to your programme, would never go on any marks. They just say, look, people in Sunderland, they voted for this. Let them lose their car works. You know, to hell with it. Stupid sods, to hell with them. The, The reason why most people who are agitated about this so resent aspirations being cast on there on our patriotism is that if we really didn't love our country mm. we wouldn't give a damn yeah. we, we, you know, we, yeah. we, we'll just look after ourselves and let it go down the toilet yeah. and what I find most shocking about uh, um, not just Corbyn and McDonnell um, but the trade union movement is they are prepared to uh, let uh, the working class, the industrial working class, which founded the bloody labour movement, they are prepared to let it suffer for the sake of some cod Marxist ideology they can't even um, articulate. There's no coherent description of Lexit anyway, any of your listeners could read, and for the sake of a of a, of a electoral grain, which I think will turn out to be illusory. I certainly hope it does. Um, so, you know... Th- I don't think people should end up like um, uh, Michael Gove and uh, what's the name of the ghastly man who ran vote leave, Dominic Cummings, and say, let's just burn the house down just for fun. Mm. Let's just see what happens. Isn't it great? Let's tear it all up. Um, uh, because it could be, it could be very bloody. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Time's running out. We're about to crash out of the show and revert to WTO podcast rules. So let's turn to the Brexit time capsule. Uh, Nick, as our special guest, you get to choose what goes into our chamber of things we'll miss if we leave the EU. Ah. Apart from, I don't know, 
democracy, the industrial working class, um, could, faith in the future. Well, okay. Uh, well, uh, I want to put in good old British common sense. Um, because there always was a, a sort of national myth about the British is that we were pragmatic, we were empirical. Those continentals, you know, with their with their with their their, their wild ways and their strange <laughs> philosophers, they would go charging off over mad ideas. But the good old Brits, you know, a bit boring, a bit boring. They would say that we are a bit boring, but nothing wrong with that. We are sensible and level-headed, and I think that's going to be. Quite a hard notion to sustain. <laughs> yeah. Come March 29th. Very good. God, I miss boring. <laughs> and now it's time for a non-English clip to see us off. Not European. It's a boost for global Britain. It's some Japanese from listener Chris Durham, who says, stretching it, concept a little here, it's a language which will be embraced across the EU, regardless of England's choice, which is cheating, but we'll allow it. That means Japanese thinking was that England and Japan were twins, ancient islands together, a European twin. Yes? But then Brexit. Brexit! Thatcher's children spat in their face. That's stupid. <laughs> Probably sounds better in Japanese. <laughs> Send us your closing clip, preferably in a European language. Just record something on your phone, keep it cleanish, and email it with a translation to info at romaniacs.com, and we'll use the best ones. That's the end of our show. Thanks to our special guest, Nick Cohen. Um, who's getting in the neck this week? Would we be mixing things up with a whimsical piece about the seasons of mists and mellow fruit? <laughs> well, 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 you know you're not actually paying me to be here. I mean, listeners, you'll be shocked, there is no fee. But what I was hoping is at least give me a bloody column idea. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a clue at the moment. Mr. Mellow Fruitfulness, everyone loves columns about autumn. Uh, can you try again, please? <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back to you. And thanks to Ingrid and Naomi, we'll see you soon. Listeners, remember you can get Romaniacs a day early if you back us on Patreon, plus those smart T-shirts, mugs and a weekly column by one of our panellists. Just search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. We'll see you next time. Now here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop, and a grand Dankeschön to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Craig Smith, Luke Jenkin, Caroline van Oostrom, Danny Mansfield and Neil Payne. And that's thanks from me to Paul Batley, Richard, Simon Gates, Gordon Paul and Justin Miller. And hello for me to John Ireson, Steve Edwards, David Walsh, Joseph Lord and Jonathan Davis. Many thanks. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ingrid Oliver. Audio production was by me, Sophie Black, and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.